Thanks, Matt, team. Um, I have one of these brilliant uh, opportunities that when I travel around, I get to meet some uh, um, amazing people, and I want to introduce you to a, a new friend. Well, they're friends. I've, we've got Kathleen here, who is uh, married to Alex, and uh, they've come down from Oxford. We met, uh, Carol and I met Alex um, during the summer when we were part of the uh, live stream uh, conference in Belgium, and I was sat in the uh, conference listening to this guy speak, and I thought, oh, I'd love to introduce him to you lot. So uh, we invited Alex to come, and Alex has, has brought Kathleen with him as well, which is brilliant. Welcome. Um, it would be best if you could... Are you you clapping your husband as he goes up? <laughs> Kathleen She's was good. clapping. We've got That's a clap. Right there, That's actually. Actually. Yeah. yeah, very helpful. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, good, good. Cool. Uh, I'll just leave you to introduce what okay. you do, what you're about, and then, and then and take it. And the sign that you've overrun yep. is that they've gone. Okay, great. Cool. All right, sweet. I appreciate your commitment this morning already. Uh, it's nice that you got the, the applause out of your system now. It's going to be a curious question as to whether that's going to happen at the end as well. Um, I'm sure it won't, but we'll see what happens. Um, so I met Dave. Here we go. Very good. Uh, this will also be interesting. I don't often use a PowerPoint, but... Um, I wanted to make some powerful points, and this imagery is helpful. Um, I met Dave in Belgium, that's right, in August. At that time, I'd just started working for an organization called the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics, which is a mouthful, uh, but apologetics is essentially the art of giving a defense for the Christian faith. Um, people have questions and objections they bring to the Christian faith, and that stops them from getting a good glimpse at Jesus. Um, my job is to help them get their obstacles removed so they can get a good glimpse at him. So arguments don't win people into the faith. Jesus does. Arguments are merely a means by which God clears away barriers to himself. And I find myself wrapped up in the task of clearing away barriers. Um, this morning, um, Dave said, preach on anything you want, which is the worst thing to say to a preacher because they'll end up saying everything they want. Uh, my wife, Kath, is in the front row. We try and do ministry together. Um, whenever I do ministry, which is fun. So this, uh, this time she came down, which is good. Um, the, if, you, if you don't like what I have to say, direct that towards her. Um, if, you do, if you do like what I say, straight to me, um, sort of unmediated, unfiltered praise is so good for my heart. Um, this is the organization I work for, Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. This is myself and my wife in October. Um, that's a photo sort of just long enough after winter in England, um, so I'd lost a bit of weight at that point. Um, so I don't put any photos up from just after winter in England. These are much later in the piece. Uh, and that's my, uh, that's Kath's side of the family, Amelia and Joe on the end. Amelia in the middle, Joe on the end, uh, her brother and sister. But we're from Brisbane, Australia. Um, we're still getting used to the winter here. Um, this morning, I want to talk about Christmas. Uh, and particularly what to think about Christmas uh, and what culture invites us to think about Christmas and how the Christian story might give us something different to think about. So, we'll get into some scriptures. Here we go. Something's just like rustling loss. Oh. Okay. Is it... Is it... I've just gone a bit doing? lower. Yeah, that's good. Very good. That feels nice. Thank you, Dave. So with that, let's open up the scriptures. If you have your Bibles, grab them out, flick them on, and turn to Matthew 1, 18 to 25. And we're just going to be reading. 
from there on. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. That really is going to town, isn't it? How's that? Yeah, good. Great. Back to the scriptures. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, God with us. When Joseph woke up, Yeah, let's get a different mic if that's okay. Thanks, Stephen. Is this uh, reading? Wonderful. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. Good work, Joseph. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. So, this morning is the first Sunday of Advent, second day of the month. Advent in the Latin is Adventus, it just means coming, Um, and Advent is specifically a season which begins on the first Sunday of the month, ends on the fourth Sunday of the month, and in between is a season where we're in waiting. Advent isn't in the Bible, uh, like a number of things in the church calendar. Um, It's a practice dating back to at least the fifth century, but no one's really sure, Um, But it's a practice which asks Christians to anticipate the coming of Jesus by reminding ourselves of what it would have been like to be in waiting as God's people in a world that felt like God was silent. So it's not a practice that's mandatory, but it is something which is an invitation to us as Christians to tap into the minds of those who were part of God's story before us. Now, the reason I think Advent is so important, and this is sort of just a preface to the talk, so I hope you don't mind. The reason I think Advent is so important, today in particular, is because we live in a world where there's multiple Advent seasons on offer. Regardless of what we believe about Christmas, we all enter into rhythms of life when December comes round. So, for the average Westerner, the beginning of Christmas... And the the, the beginning of the Christmas season is December 1st, right? And the date could be completely arbitrary. Um, The date has nothing to do with it. It's just that December rolls around and we start turning to our spouse in bed saying, oh my gosh, it's December, Christmas is around the corner. Um, And and then more than that, uh, it's it's usually, I mean, Kath and I and my wife, we're used to being paid every fortnight in Australia. One thing you do here in England, it seems, is get paid every month. So that means the question you ask around December 1st is, oh my gosh, yesterday was the last payday, have we budgeted enough for the 25th? Because you ain't going to see more money before this side of Christmas. And so you start asking all these questions. But here's the point. You smuggle in all these expectations for what the season is about, to what it aims, 
and how we're meant to spend it. For others, the beginning of the Christmas season um, might be marked by like the first work party you're a part of. And you go to this work party and you return home and you feel really rested and whole, but then you try and go back to work for another three weeks. And every day feels like the last five minutes of a normal work day. It's 4.55 p.m. on a normal work day. You've got one foot out the door, one foot behind your desk because you kind of want to do both. That's what the last three weeks of Christmas after the work party feels like. I feel like I'm in holiday mode already and um, it's going to be good. So whatever it is, everyone brings the holiday season in somehow. But the question is around what is everybody's season centered? Today, the practices and the symbols with which we surround ourselves in the West bring us the contours of the holiday season, but they're not centered around Jesus. They bring us the contours of the celebration, but not the Christ that we're celebrating. On one level, this is okay. We live in a pluralistic society. Live and let live. That's fine. But also just acknowledge what you're doing if you're not a Christian. Just acknowledge that. That's that's fine. We live in a pluralistic society, but just acknowledge what's taking place. You're enjoying the contours of the celebration without Jesus. You're enjoying the kingdom without the king. That's, that's fine, but acknowledge it. Um, on another level, it's totally not fine, because if you're a Christian, um, Christmas celebrates the biggest claim on reality that ever took place. For reasons we'll get into in a minute, Christmas is not simply another part of the year where we have a holiday and recoup from the event that was 2018, for example. Christmas means way more than that. There's a bunch of things that happen in the season, but the point is this, that Christmas sort of just comes and goes, and we, without thinking about it, get conscripted by all the Advent seasons on offer. So this morning, I just want to talk about the meat behind the meaning of Christmas. So we've got three circles. We'll follow through these. You'll see how these relate to the talk as we go through. I'll make some powerful points, and uh, I think we can learn three things from the text we just read. So thing number one. Christmas means that there's hope. A few years ago, I finally got around to reading the Narnia novels. I didn't read growing up. I always cared about soccer and girls, so I never read the books. And when I finally decided I want to be a Christian who sort of commends the faith credibly, I was like, I should read some stuff. So I read Narnia of all things. I read other things, trust me. But I read Narnia, and um, the story in Narnia is so fascinating. Um, The kids in the second novel finally make it into the world of Narnia as they go through playing hide-and-go-seek. And as they enter in, they realize that their fawn friend, Mr. Tumnus, has been kidnapped. So they find themselves in the company of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they're asking, what can we do to help? How can we save Mr. Tumnus? And Mr. Beaver says pretty much nothing. Mr. Tumnus is is doomed to rot in the castle of the, the White Witch, all the days of his life. But then Mrs. Beaver interrupts and says, but there is hope. I mean, how how good is having a wife in your life who always tells you about the optimistic things to which your pessimistic things always seem to trump? But she says, there is hope. And then Mr. Beaver's like, oh yeah. He says this, he says, there's a great deal more than hope as lands on the move. But they just stare blankly back at him, right? And Edmund the Younger finally is the brave one who asks the question, who is Aslan? And then Mr. Beaver interrupts and he says, you don't know? He's only the king of the entire wood, the top geezer, the real king of Narnia. But they still just stare back blankly. And so Mr. Beaver has to go on and explain the story up to that point (laughs) until where the Pevensies arrived. And here's the point. Because they didn't know the story up until that point, 
They didn't know what it meant that Aslan had come back. Um, maybe to like step back from this story and make a general point. Um, things mean what they mean in relation to the story of which we're a part. So what story are you a part of this morning? Um, few people today have been a part of God's story, so they don't know the story up until the point which Christmas celebrates. Wrapped up in the story of God's people before Jesus rocked up was just these four things. They thought they were God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing. That started with a promise to Abraham. It was achieved in the Exodus through Moses. And it was formalized under the King David as the first monarch who truly loved God. Halfway through that story, the nation is established and all of their worries are taken care of. But then for six centuries before Jesus, get this, <coughs> silence, nothing. They weren't God's people under God's place, under God's rule, under God's blessing. They were exiled to Babylon first, and then the Persians started dominating them. And then under Persian rule, there's a prophet named Malachi who gives the last words of our Old Testament in a prophecy and a promise. And he says this, Surely the days are coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be, stub- will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked, and they will be ashes under the sole of your feet on the day when I act. And so this promise is given. They're under Persian rule. That was never meant to be the story of which they're a part, but they're under Persian rule. Promise is given that God's going to come back, restore justice, wipe away evil, and reinstate his chosen nation. And then what? 400 years of silence and a bunch of, a bunch of new rulers. After the Persians was the Greeks, and after the Greeks were the Romans. Nothing in the midst of this time. It's called the intertestamental period. You might have heard that phrase before. God didn't say a word. There was wise people writing, but nothing that resembled the voice of God or the action of God. And here's the question they're asking. Where's God? Why are we still oppressed? How is God going to come good on his promise to do away with evil? And so just to be clear, this is the type of longing that God's people were experiencing before Jesus rocked up. This is it. This is what Advent asks us to step into, to catch ourselves up with that story, which might take some work. But we won't do that work now, because then this text comes along and it says, bang, Mary's pregnant, Joseph wants to divorce her, the angel says don't, good guy Joseph, and the angel says this, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people. Bang, that's it. 400 years of silence and God speaks. Could you imagine this? Wouldn't that give you hope? God's on the scene. Mr. and Mrs. Beaver do the exact same thing for the Pevensies that I've just done for you, but you can do it in your own time even better than I've just done now in that last two minutes. The story goes that long ago the, the white witch gained power and it had been winter ever since. But then a prophecy came when Adam's flesh and Adam's bone 
sits at Care Paravel throne, the evil time will be over and done. And so the people of Narnia were waiting in the story. Their winter drew longer and longer. Then Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy rock up. There's signs and whispers of Aslan, the rightful king, returning to Narnia. And so Mrs. Beaver cries out, there's a great deal more than hope. This is true for us. We actually have hope because God rocked up in our world when we wanted justice to be restored. And I wish I had time to expand on this first point, but I just want to ask you one question at the end of it. Do you believe in that hope? Do you know it? Is it as visceral? Is it as real? Is it as life and death in your own heart as it might have been for Jews waiting for God to speak in a world that seemed like he was silent? Do you know about that hope? It's life-changing. I think the second thing we get to learn about Christmas is that, the, is that it's about history. Um, if God really has returned to his people in Jesus, then God has written himself into history, which is absolutely staggering. And it changes the way that anybody who's interested can come to know about God. One thing that the atheistic worldview will say is that this world is a closed system, uh, that there's no God outside of it, and that everything is the end result of time plus matter plus chance. That's a caricature, and uh, we can talk about it afterwards if you want, but that's, that's, that's what you're reduced to. Material processes, nothing but biology and neurons for the human. So we shouldn't expect to find him. But suppose you were interested to see whether God was real, whether you were convinced by the beauty of the hope and you said, actually, I want this to be true, so you started to see whether it was. How would you find out? In 1961, um, the Russian cosmonaut, some of you might know this story, Yuri Gagarin, was the first man to enter space, 1961. And the Soviet leader, um, Nikita Khrushchev, was talking about it at a meeting uh, at the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. The meeting was about the state's anti-religion campaign, and in support of it, Khrushchev said this, reflecting on the space exploration. He said, Gagarin flew into space, but didn't see any God there. For Khrushchev, Gagarin's expedition was evidence against God's existence. In other words, he said, we sent a man into heaven and God wasn't there, therefore God mustn't be real. Now, despite this being just absolutely absurd, um, it gives great pause for thought for each of us. If you're interested in God's existence here, how would you come to know about him? What would you do? See, Eastern worldviews, for example, Buddhism, Hinduism, pantheistic sort of religions, they would say, look in, try to find out who God is by looking into your own private experience. Uh, Meditate and you'll find God there. Um, the, the, The danger is that you might fashion a God if you do that. You might fashion a God in your own image. That's a real danger. Christianity says something entirely different to other worldviews. It says that Um, Actually, we'll get there. But Christianity does say something entirely different to other worldviews. At the time of Khrushchev's uh, comments in 1961, C.S. Lewis was alive. And uh, it was the New York magazine that asked him to respond to Khrushchev's comments. And so Lewis published an essay called Onward, Christian Spaceman. In it, he argued that if there was a God, you wouldn't relate to God the same way that Khrushchev concluded on God's existence. You wouldn't relate to God the same way that someone in the kitchen relates to someone in the upstairs bedroom. That would be like trying to confirm the existence of an architect of the home you live in by looking in the attic. 
You'd relate to God in the same way that Hamlet, a character in a play, would relate to Shakespeare. The only way Hamlet can relate to Shakespeare is by reflecting deeply on the events of the play while he himself is a part of it, finding in it traces of Shakespeare's character and person. Let me put it this way. Often artists can tell who painted a painting by reflecting on the painting. Or an architect can be found out, you can find out who an architect is by reflecting on the building you're looking at. Um, In one sense, every human, regardless of what community they're a part of, has the ability to reflect on this world and trace its inner workings, the fingerprint, up to God himself. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, looking for God or heaven by exploring space is like reading or seeing all Shakespeare's plays in the hope you will find Shakespeare as one of the characters or Stratford as one of the places. Shakespeare is in one sense present at every moment in every play, but he's never present in the same way as Falstaff or Lady Macbeth. To some, God is discoverable everywhere. To others, nowhere. Those who do not find him on earth are unlikely to find him in space. But send up a saint in a spaceship, and he'll find God in space as he found God on earth. Much depends on the seeing eye. But it does get better than this. Because if this is the only means by which you come to know God, you'll only come to know general things about him. You reflect on creation, oh, there must be a creator. You reflect on your conscience, oh, God must care about right and wrong. That's, that's a shadow of what we know about God. Which is why the Christian story is so beautiful. It says that God himself didn't just speak from afar, wasn't just the end result of our philosophical musings. The Christian story says that God wrote himself into history. And this is why Matthew writes this. He says, this baby will indeed be God with us. Emmanuel. What's the point? The point is that Christmas means history can be examined and history should tell us about God. Specifically, that we can find out about Jesus. One thing you'll notice when you examine other worldviews is that a lot of them begin with some sort of private revelation, which one person disseminates to the rest. This is fine. It's absolutely fine. But it doesn't give you any sort of public attestation to the events. So if someone comes to you with a private revelation of their own, you might say, okay, I think I believe you, but here's the point I'm making. You have no confidence, no metrics by which to have confidence in believing them. Christianity is so different. Christianity is as public as it gets. One of my professors would say, he says, Christianity lays its head on the chopping block of history and asks anyone who's game to come and take a swing. Now, let's just say you want to do this. I just want to spend two minutes going through some stuff that's going to be helpful for that. Let's just say you want to do this. You're new to faith. You're on the outside of faith, whatever it might be, and you want to check out to see whether this is actually the case. So you start to dig up some first century sources, which might tell you about this Jesus guy. Great. Couldn't agree with you more. For one, let's just acknowledge, historically, it's amazing that you'd be able to find anything. The nature of historical record is so absurd. Um, For example, we actually have shopping dockets from peasants in the first century, but we don't have have one letter uh, of writing from Emperor Tiberius, who was the man who ruled the world in Jesus' day. We have shopping dockets from peasants, but not one letter from Emperor Tiberius. Um, one historian estimates that the 
artifacts and writings that survive to our day are about 1% of what would have existed in that time. So one, it's amazing that we'd find anything. But let's say you do find something. The question you want to ask is not whether all of the things you read agree perfectly, because that would be evidence of people getting into a room, colluding amongst themselves and saying, we've got to get this story straight. You want to find broad, sweeping narrative agreement with superficial differences. Fundamental similarities, superficial differences. That's what you want to find. And so you say, well, the New Testament seems to say that Jesus was a king, that he did wonderful miracles, uh, that his followers believed him even unto death. But you're skeptical, so you don't want to read the New Testament. So you go to some ancient, first century, non-Christian sources. And so the first you might read is by a guy, uh, a Stoic philosopher, uh, whose name was Marabar Serapian. And he wrote around 75 AD, which is about 40 years after the life of Jesus. He, in his writings, refers to Jesus as a king. He's not a Christian. Jesus was a king to him, uh, a teacher, and a martyr. And then he has this fascinating phrase. He says in one of his writings, um, what did it avail the Jews to kill their wise king, talking about Jesus, since their kingdom was taken away from them from that time on? So, one, to have anything about people in history is amazing. You've got a non-Christian source telling us what people believed about Jesus. You've got great confidence now to believe what you know about him. But let's keep going. The second you might read is a guy, a Roman historian named Tacitus. Uh, He wrote in about 115 AD. Um, He confirms in his writings that the crucifixion of Jesus by by the order of the Roman governor uh, Pontius Pilate, he confirms that. So we throw that into the basket of our story. We've got some things being confirmed here. There's another guy, Pliny the Younger. He was a lawyer in Rome, and he uh, held the magistrate's courts there. He also writes about Jesus. All these sources coming through one by one. And then finally, there was a a Jewish man by the name Josephus. And I'll read out just a few of these. I've highlighted some really uh, interesting ones. But he's Josephus. He commanded war three decades after um, a Jew. Yeah, three decades after Jesus, he was writing. And he's writing a history of Jewish war. And he says something so fascinating about Jesus, um, which no one would disagree with. He says, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, for he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. When Pilate, upon hearing him, accused by men of the highest standing amongst us, had condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him, and the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. Why, why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you all this because there's a wonderful list of things right here, which if you were so skeptical of the New Testament, you'd be able to find out about Jesus. And the nature of history is so absurd that we have a shopping docket from a peasant, not one letter of the ruler of the world in Jesus' day, And we can know this much about a backwater itinerant preacher in Nazareth? That's absurd. But here's the overall point. You can have absolute confidence in everything you need to know about Jesus. One contemporary critical scholar put it like this. He said, There are no substantial doubts about the general course of Jesus' life, when and where he lived, approximately when and where he died, and the sort of thing that he did in his public activity. Now, I agree. That doesn't mean if you're skeptical that all of your doubts are dissolved. But it does mean you've got every reason to look into the history with as much skepticism as you want. Go for it. This is your license. This is your warrant. And what better time of year, Christmas, than to do it. And just to be clear, the gospel themselves are actually a great place to start. 
They're wonderful documents that record history so faithfully. And time and time again, the 20th century archaeological digs are finding stuff that the authors themselves said were there that no one believed, and then archaeology dug it up. It's insane. So start with the Gospels if you want, but I just wanted to give you that road if that was your own story. If secular historians can deduce the main points about Jesus' life, you've actually got every reason to explore it for yourself. If God has written himself into history... Maybe you'll let him write himself into your story. Last one. Christmas means that there's hope that God himself has written himself into history. And finally, that on offer in Christmas is the giver himself. As you fast forward in Matthew's gospel, you'll come to the story of the wise men bringing gifts from the east, frankincense, gold, and myrrh. No no one actually knows where we trace our contemporary culture of gift-giving. Some think St. Nick, uh, sort of northern European sort of story there, something that no one actually knows. But I'd hazard a guess that this would be the first thing like it. Strangers bringing gifts to Jesus. And often when we give gifts, it's often because we're trying to express something of ourselves to the person that we love. When you receive a good gift, what what you think is inside is, you think this, you think... Oh, you really know me. Or, or you think, um, I know the lengths that you've gone to get this for me. And it's absolutely wonderful. But there's two problems in our human culture of gift giving. One of the frequent ex- experiences of our, our culture of gift giving is that our expectations always, always exceed our reality. Um, last year was mine and Kath's first Christmas. Uh, Kath's love language is gifts. We were poor. So I got creative, and uh, I came up with this idea to give Kath a different gift every day of Advent. And so I hung up little cards on our notice board. Each day, the card would have like a little haiku poem, which is completely irrelevant from our cultural backgrounds, but we did it anyway. She'd read that, and then on the bottom would be the list of the gift. So I bought her flowers, I bought her tea, um, and then I started to get nervous about how much money we didn't have. Um, So I started writing vouchers, like 20-minute massage, or um, chore-free week, or something like that. But then I started getting nervous about how much time I didn't have. It was the final few weeks of my uh, first term at Oxford, and I was just so overloaded. So on the 17th of December, there was no card, there was no gift, and I completely failed. And for her, the reality of my gift-giving far exceeded, uh, sorry, far, far failed her expectations of it. That's one problem. On another level, um, we'll be finished very soon. I, I appreciate your patience here. On another level, the problem with our human gift-giving is that it's easy to accept the gift while, like, while rejecting the giver. This is the story of a lot of families when their kids unwrap presents on Christmas Day. Thank you so much. I'll be in my room. But it's also the story of how we can typically relate to one another. Very often we think about people not in terms of our sort of naked, unfettered love for them, but about them in terms of what they can do for us or what they can give us. We want their social prestige. We want their finances, whatever it might be. But rarely do we want them. In the Christmas narrative, the gift on offer is the giver himself. See, if Jesus is truly God with us, then the gift you receive in the Christmas story is nothing less than God himself. Which means that there's no difference between what you expect of the gift and what you receive of the gift. Because it's always only God himself. Plus it means that there's no present or thing detached from God 
which you can accept while rejecting the giver. You're made an offer in the Christmas story. The question is, what do you do with that offer? If you were a Jew in first century Israel, when you thought about being saved, you thought about God himself, the king, coming to do away with all evil. Which is why the angel's message is so exciting. He will save his people. In other words, good news, Merry Christmas. But one thing I failed to read out before was the final words of that verse. It reads, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. In other words, Joseph was given the most exciting declaration and the most ominous judgment. Joseph's promise and offer in the angel was this, that God's people are right to long for the dissolution of evil. You are right to do that. But that includes your own. The problem with any project to do away evil is that it almost always becomes one tribe's definition of good trying to outcompete another tribe's definition of good. Evil, therefore, gets characterized as the people out there, which means that the project of getting rid of evil often becomes the project of getting rid of people that don't agree with me. When the angel came declaring that God's a savior, that God's people thought this, that finally we're going we're gonna to overcome the oppression and evil under which we sit. But the angel said, the problem is not the one nation by which you're oppressed. The problem is your heart which oppresses yourself. You don't need liberation from them, you need liberation from you. Why? Because in the Christian story, sin is not just the out there reality which is going, which God is going to get rid of. It's the internal predisposition of the heart which he needs to melt away. The Christian story pulls no punches, but withholds no praise. The Christmas story is the scariest verdict and the greatest compliment. It says that you're more broken and sinful than you ever dared think, but you're more loved and accepted than you ever dared imagine. Why? Because God himself has given himself to save you from your sin. The offer of the Christmas story is that you get Jesus right there, knowable, examinable, and tangible. But you can't receive the gift without the giver, which means you're always going to be both humbled to the depths, made aware of your own brokenness before a holy God, but exalted to the skies, made aware of God's love for you in the broken body of Jesus. And maybe that's why Christmas is so powerful, because behind it is the meaning of hope and history and God himself. And so my question this morning is just this, how will you spend your advent What will you let your mind be drawn towards? What will you let conscript your heart? And will you remember the hope and the history and God himself as you wait to celebrate his coming to earth on Christmas Day? I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that God will bless you for waiting those extra few minutes as I finished up the sermon. And uh, and we'll finish this service this morning. But let's bow our heads and we'll pray together. Hey, Father, thank you so much for your love for us. And God, your answer to the evil in the world. Not to wipe away people, but to melt the human heart. What a unique offer. Father, I just pray for anyone in the room this morning who feels distant from you, who themselves don't know you, but they feel strangely warm towards you this morning. I pray, Father, that you would help them make that step, whether of investigating your claims or whether of just drawing near to you in faith. God, I pray that this morning you would just touch every heart in the room. And God, we just anticipate the glorious celebration of Christmas Day 
by stepping into the story of waiting for a God to give us hope, to write himself into history and to give us himself. Lord, we just accept you today and receive you. Thank you for giving yourself to us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.